Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We are welcoming to the show uh, a double guest, rare uh, double guest for uh, this episode. We have Kay Whitlock and Nancy Heitzig, who are authors of the book Carceral Con. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves a little bit. Uh, tell us, give us a little bit of your background here. Maybe start with you, Kay. Sure. I, um, uh, am a longtime activist, uh, organizer, writer whose work focuses on structural violence, particularly in the last 20 years, structural violence in, uh, the criminal legal system and, it's public and private proxies. I'm a longtime activist. Uh, I began work doing support work for United Farm Workers Organizing Committee and uh, anti-war work in 1968 and kind of have never stopped. Nancy and I met each other on a political blog that we won't name because we don't like that blog. Um, in 2008, <laughs> uh, we began, we were both independently writing on uh, violence in the criminal legal system in policing and prisons, and we began doing some work together there. And since that time, we've worked independently and together. And by the way, I'm based in Montana now. So bringing also a bit of a rural perspective to something that's often framed only in very urban terms. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we should we should come back to that later. Um, Nancy, any, you want to say a, a few words? Yes. Uh, I'm a professor of sociology and critical studies of race and ethnicity at St. Catherine University in St. Paul. Um, I'm in Minneapolis. Where I've lived for a very long time, originally from uh, what I call the farm in southern Minnesota. Uh, my entire sociological career, and I mean, in a, in a certain sense, my whole life has been uh, really studying race, class, gender, and social control. And my particular interests um, have been school to prison pipeline and prison industrial complex. Um, and, and always from an abolitionist perspective. Yeah. So to kind of, you know, kick the discussion off a little bit, like, can you, can you tell us, you know, uh, uh, break down what is the purpose in your view, uh, maybe starting with UK, um, what is the point of the prison and policing system? You know, the criminal justice system or the criminal punishment system, sometimes people call it like, what function does it serve um, it, uh, in in like the you know society of the United States? Well, I think it serves a couple of functions. I think first and foremost is the function of of social control, and I think it protects the property and the political interests and the racial hierarchies of political and economic elites in this country. I think that. Um, you know, as as we talk in the book, uh, as we say in the book, that the context in which this system was founded and evolved and continues to evolve uh, is in the context of, of racial capitalism, where racial hierarchies and class uh, oppression are seamlessly, absolutely seamlessly entwined. Yeah. 
So it's not like <laughs> sort of what I was fishing at there. Like it's the crime control is something that is not e- like the system as constructed really is not even uh, a part of what it's designed to do. If there weren't so much harm embedded in all of this, it would be laughable to describe this system as one that actually cares about uh, crime and wrongdoing and <clears throat> violence uh, to to vulnerable people. In fact, and Nancy can can expand on this, but. From the very beginning, from the beginning of prisons, from the beginning of the evolution of a criminal legal system, black people, other non-white racial groups, poor people have always been under the thumb of this system. That's who the system brings in. It's who it punishes. It's who it surveys. And you cannot even begin to talk about this system as one that deals seriously um, with crime when it doesn't consider widespread ecological devastation a crime, when it doesn't consider wage theft a crime, when it doesn't consider uh, the multiple brutal impacts of structural racism structural economic violence, structural ableism, and structural gender violence. Those aren't in the picture at all. And, and Kay, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because I think we we need to clarify for the audience the distinction between crime and harm, because I think part of the perniciousness of the system is the conflation of those two things, as you just pointed out. And then maybe we could get to some of those harms that are not actually criminal and, and why that might be. Oh, right. Nancy, why don't you um, take us into the, the crime and harm discussion? Uh, yes. I mean, crime in the United States is um, largely constructed um, as mm, quote-unquote harm um, that individuals commit. And and certainly we have, you know, the FBI big eight index offenses, which, you know, would be um, the four big violent um, felonies and um, the four major property categories. And um, there's not a big debate about whether or not those are harmful. But but the web of criminalization, of course, extends far beyond that, um, you know, criminalization of poverty, criminalization of um, houselessness, um, criminalization of, you know, a variety of drugs, um, use, um, sex work, etc. Um, and, you know, in the United States, um, the, the, the legal construction of crime has almost always been accompanied by, um, a stereotypical media imagery construction of, right, who is the criminal, um, you know, which is, you know, as Kay has suggested earlier, um, you know, associated with certain groups of people. Um, so um, there's an ideological function of crime control, right, that is a big part of the story. You know, and that's been, you know, people have been aware of that, you know, for a very long time. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, early 
very early 20th century, beginning of the 20th century, you know, is talking about the imputation of crime to color. Um, so this is an old story and, you know, an old bad story <laughs> that, that continues on. Yeah. Ryan, did you did you catch that wage theft is not a crime? And and as and this is something I, I learned of only recently. Uh and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I also believe that wage theft is the largest amount of uh theft as a category, I I believe. Uh which is to say employers uh not paying employees what they're owed. And that's not a crime. That's something that has to be sued for. Is that right? Well, it's I can't say in every jurisdiction it may not be a crime, but right. in general, it right. is treated as something that should be addressed through civil action. That is, let's say it's employees in a business. Uh, let's say it's uh, employees who are low-waged and also work for tips, and so depend on that and depend on honest accounting of 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 accrued tips, uh, and sometimes it's just basically the general wage that is not being paid. The onus then is on complainants individually or together to take some sort of civil action against it. That's usually how it's treated uh, in the legal system. That obviously um, is going to be expensive. Uh, and we're talking that wage theft often often happens to the people who can least afford to have their wages uh, withheld or reduced because uh, because the boss uh, doesn't want to give it to them or has found a tricky way to circumvent um, fair wage laws. But you'll find that actually a lot in uh, it, it, it's not only with wage theft. In the book, we make the point that the larger the structural injustice, that is, the larger the injustice is embedded in the normal workings of so-called respectable institutions, mm -hmm. public and private, the larger the harm is that is done, the less likely it is going to be addressed through the justice system in any meaningful way, and usually at all. Could even be part of the way the justice system operates, like with civil asset forfeiture, right? I believe the total quantity of civil asset forfeiture as of recently uh, is larger than all the robberies put together. Um, then, I mean, civil asset forfeiture, if people don't uh, don't know, that's uh, basically legal robbery where the police can just take your your money and they don't have to convict you of anything. Uh, they just they just have to have like a reasonable suspicion or something like that. Um, True. And the um, one of the places where there is uh, a lot of 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 actual, quote unquote, uh, bipartisan uh, coming together is around civil uh, for um, asset forfeiture and the right and libertarians would have us believe this is at the center of the kind of thing the bipartisan reform machine uh, seeks to change. Actually, not true. At the same time, the libertarian right may support uh, bans on, on uh, asset forfeiture and that kind of thing. Um, they're busy trying to make sure that corporations 
uh, cannot be criminalized. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, so it's important for people to understand that when we're looking at the terrain of criminal legal system reform, and we call it criminal legal system because we don't think there's a shred of justice really to be had in the the, the so-called criminal justice system. But when you look at um, what's going on there, there are going to be a million ways to protect the entrenched interests and another million or more ways to trap poor people, black people, indigenous people, Latinx into sort of frenzies of criminalization and have people convince us that they're the danger. The right and libertarians will posit um, big government alone as as the issue. And there's no question that government uh, often goes awry. But that becomes a smokescreen then too to have us look away from the amount of 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 corporate mm-hmm. violence and the ways in which many public and private institutions become proxies for policing and punishment. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, can, can, and it's one of the reasons why we say you can't look at just one piece of the reform thing and and agendas and think you have a larger picture of what's really going on. Yeah, may, maybe you could speak to this a little bit uh, more, Nancy. Um, this, like, a little more context on this bipartisan criminal justice reform movement, such as it exists. You know, there's, I mean, I, 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 I guess I wouldn't say there's a tremendous amount of agreement or like movement on this, uh, like, like in terms of, you know, Democrats and Republicans sort of making it a top agenda item together. But like, you definitely Mm -hmm. have seen a lot of stuff at the States or like people trying to like cut the prison budget, Trump doing some like high profile commutations of, uh, of people's sentences and sort of, you know, making a, a move at least, uh, for a moment away from war on crime, you know, politics, lock up the brutes. And so can you, can you explain like, like go into detail a little bit more about that and, and uh, you know, what the problems are with the kind of the bipartisan uh, criminal justice reform, so-called agenda. There, there are so many layers of problems and I'm, and and I'm hoping Kay will weigh in here as well. Um, I guess I would say, Bottom line, um, bipartisan reform agendas almost always have some framing that is controlled by the right. Um, right on crime, Texas poli- um, public policy um, um, initiative, you know, money from Koch brothers. Um, it, it's, it's an, you know, bipartisan in the sense that, you know, NAACP and some Democrats and some, you know, other unlikely allies are, are brought into the mix, but it's a frame, um, that, that is heavily dominated by, um, the right. 
if, if you don't mind, to, to also uh, let us know the connection between the right and, and neoliberalism, because it seems like austerity and neoliberalism uh, is, is a, a real happy partner with the right in, in this effort, right? Yeah, so there's that, that shared common ground in um, uh, use of public resources for um, private profiteering. Um, you know, that's that's certainly a common thread. Um, and then what we end up seeing um, in almost all of the reforms that are um, posited by the, you know, this bipartisan um, coalition um, it is really an expansion of the system. You know, so-called diversionary programs that really don't divert people from criminal justice. They wind them in deeper with, um, you know, drug court expectations, um, fines and fees, um, electronic monitoring. I mean, that's one example. Yeah, I was shocked that uh, to, to find out that uh, parolees and, and uh, people on probation have an average of 18 to 20 requirements each day that they have to meet uh, or face possible return to prison. Uh, the, 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 the level, talk about social control. I think this goes to your point that, that social control isn't just the incarceration bit, right? No, no. Um, you know, I mean, and when people talk about prison industrial complex, right, we often, you know, prison is, you know, in many ways the epicenter of that. We think about that 2.3 million people in, in, uh, prison and jail, you know, but there's another, Seven million people under some other kind of correctional control, um, probation, um, you know, post-release supervision, um, you know, and that ends up with, um, you know, its own set of um, economic and social and, um, you know, personal obligations um, that, you know, that people have to meet. Um May I come back to the question of of, of neoliberalism and yeah, and and sure. how that kind of bridges uh, b- between the libertarian right and um, centrist moderates? You know, some people, some supporters of reforms would would uh, even call themselves progressive, and in some cases, that's their intention, even if the outcomes are definitely not. But with neoliberalism, we also point out in the book that that the neoliberal political agendas, the neoliberal politics, support aggressive deregulation of 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 almost everything, and they support market-based approaches to everything. Um, which we, you know, we we can talk in in a few minutes about one of the one of the really um, obscene things that's happening in the name of reform under so-called social impact investing and social impact bonds. Um, neoliberalism also is always working to gut social spending for human needs and for social public goods. And, you know, that's something we began to see really begin to snowball uh, among the Democrats with Bill Clinton. Not every single Democrat adheres to a neoliberal framework in quite the same way, but it's certainly safe to say that the leadership does. And when 
bipartisan agendas, and there are some 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 general templates of reform and some general coalitions and campaigns that form that bring people uh, together formally to push, say, agendas of sentencing reforms. And the public relations spin on this is going to be that um, we're fewer people are being criminalized, that there are now diversion programs, there are early release programs, there are all kinds of things um, that are getting people out of prisons. In some cases, that's true. In some cases, that's a gross exaggeration. But even when it's true, what's not being reported on is how many of those people who are going into so-called alternatives to incarceration or diversion programs, um, which Nancy can speak to uh, beautifully, are how many are being sent into those and what the surveillance requirements are, what's really happening to them, and how often they end up having to pay fees if they're sentenced to, if, 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 if going into a diversion program means they have to have drug tests, they often have to pay for their own drug tests if it requires some kind of anger management counsel, they're going to have to pay for that if it requires, um, in some cases, probation or parole supervision fees, you know, are now put on to people. So we have the an intensely raced, almost completely classed population of people being brought into the criminal legal system and, and managed uh, in some ways. And then the predatory nature of the system itself both public and private. And here we need to say, yes, a lot of pro uh, private profits are being made, but this is also the predominant power here is public power. Less than 10% of prisoners in prisons in the United States are in private prisons with the exception of immigrant detention. And for the most part, immigrant detention is a civil procedure, not a criminal procedure. Um, so that there are a lot of tricks here, a lot of hidden stuff that people aren't aware of. And there are so many people who actually care about justice and they have good intentions and they think, well, I want this to be working. I want people to be able to come together across, um, partisan interests and work for what we can achieve, uh, together. But intentions, their good intentions for what they hope this will be achieved, are not met by the impacts that are actually happening. And what we have is in the country, as we know, there's a growing and deepening structural inequality in wealth and income and in housing, for that matter, in health care, deepening and growing the populations that are swept into the criminal legal system are the ones most harmed by structural inequality. And now, under the guise of reform, we have an expanding system that is extracting more time, more money from the most vulnerable people and, and families. So it's quite a it's quite a con game. It's that's the only way to describe right. it. Right. It's a con game, although 
groups. It's a long con. <laughs> yeah, ACLU and NAACP would would never describe it. And in some sure. cases, they will speak out against some of the harms that are done. But it's important to say, uh, as Nancy pointed out, that the right essentially gets to establish the limits of reform. So nothing structural is going to happen. We don't know if left to their own NAACP and ACLU and some of the other um, groups that actually seem to care about civil liberties and civil rights in the United States. We don't know what their agendas might look like in terms of linking the criminal legal system's distillation of structural inequality and structural violence uh, to the larger issue of needing to address structural inequality. We don't know because they're limited and they have accepted those limits. And that's a damn shame. Right. I, I think that's the, that's the key, right? I mean, there, there's so much there that you, um, that I want to come to because, uh, you know, the fundamental, I think, argument in the book about the reform movements is that th this acceptance of the, uh, the status quo that replicates and reproduces the actual violence of the system and that pretends it's dealing with it, but instead is actually perpetuating it through the criminal legal system. The acceptance of that is the problem with these kind of uh, piecemeal reform initiatives, some of which are okay, some of which are problematic. You know, there's a depends. And so it's not that you're saying that every single proposal is a problem because some of them might be okay in the short term or do some good. The liberals and the kind of uh, various groups that aren't on the right that are involved in the reform effort, they it seems like they cannot acknowledge uh, racial capitalism as such and the, and the, the function of the criminal legal, legal system in, um, in serving wealth and power, right? It seems like the abolition movement is basically the only one that sees the interconnections here. Um, and so you get, I think a lot of, uh, liberals therefore get seduced by reform efforts, especially, I mean, I almost lost my mind when I saw, uh, smart justice and data driven, which is neutral. I mean, that this is the kind of liberal nonsense that just, uh, you know, perpetuates the violence of the system and thinks that, that technology and technocracy is the answer, right? So, so, so yeah, what, what, what are some of these dangers here that, that continue to mask the actual truth of racial capitalism instead offering these quick fixes based on technology and expertise. Well, you're exactly right that the, that the assumption of the quote unquote reformers, right. Is that, that, that the system is not inherently problematic, right. That the system is not inherently and really irredeemably, um, rooted in racial capitalism and that we could, um, that we could fix it. Um, certainly one of the big topics of the moment is really around the police. Um, right. Um, you know, always the few bad apple arguments, um, and that, you know, we could, you know, we could reform police and, and these arguments have been recycled over and over again, um, you know, for decades and decades, right? That we could um, fix the police if we um, hired more um, officers of color and women, um, right? Increased diversity, 
Um, we could improve the police if we had more training, um, you know, implicit bias, procedural justice, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, you know, we've tried that. And then there's some collective amnesia. Uh, <laughs> right. That that. Oh, we've tried this like six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And apparently it didn't work. But let's try it again. And of course, it always then requires that we invest more money in the system, right? Um, more money in training, as you say, more money in technology. Um, body cameras are a perfect example of that, right? Oh, police will behave better, you know, if they're required to document their um, encounters with citizens. Well, you know, we've seen how that has turned out too, um, you know, and, and then what have we really done? Um, we've, you know, we, the public, have paid, you know, millions and millions of dollars to, you know, Axiom body cams, um, right? We've um, um, we've created a new surveillance tool, right, for police, um, you know, and, and, and that's what we've done, right? We certainly have not fixed the problem of um, police citizen violence in any way whatsoever. Yeah. You know, um, let me just jump in here a minute and say that we we sort of collected um, the unspoken elements of the bipartisan consensus that run uh, like an artery through through all of all of this stuff. When you take um, these brokered agreements that are philanthropy driven. Uh, that have both a financial and political benefits to them. When you take them together, you know, what you will find is the reform rhetoric will say, uh, we're containing danger more effectively. We're giving you more public safety. We're saving taxpayer dollars. And we are creating a fairer, smarter, smaller system. Now just keep those things in mind. What the system actually does, and we we show this as throughout the, the, the criminal legal system and the reforms, that these reform agendas actually expand the criminal legal punishment system and systems of carceral control. That, as we've already noted, instead of talking about structural justice and dismantling systems that produce violence and inequality, the emphasis is on tweaking carceral procedures and methods, but leaving them at the very center of the discussion. Reform agendas shift more and more influence and decision-making into the hands of private, unaccountable interests, especially through funding schemes and the proliferation of a favorite neoliberal tool, public partner, public-private partnerships. Reform agendas promote austerity politics, instead of emphasizing the need for radically different social, political, and fiscal priorities that redistribute wealth, resources, and power. Although the reform agendas will suggest that by, quote, saving taxpayer dollars, and we should come back to that in a minute, um, that somehow more resources will be available for social needs. And a lot of people believe that's true. It's not true. Even the so-called justice reinvestment procedures that exist within this framework of brokered bipartisan reform agreements go back into 
public-private iterations of the system itself. Another factor is that through these reformed agendas, already poor and low-income people, primarily um, black and other people of color, primarily gendered, end up with new streams of debt and surveillance and coercion. It not only doesn't help fix the structural equality, it imposes deeper forms of it. And the reform generally does not provide more dollars for social goods, human needs, and environmental well-being, but redistributes those resources to the criminal legal system and its public-private properties. And the rhetoric of community safety, community policing, and community-based alternatives to detention advances expansion of criminal databases, the use of surveillance and monitoring technologies, and the criminalization of dissent and protest. That's what we're really getting, but the public relations machine powering bipartisan reform agendas, campaigns, and coalitions is just prodigious. So people really come to believe that saving taxpayer dollars is a good thing. It's actually a rhetoric that disguises the anti-tax agenda of yeah. the libertarian. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, uh, I was, I was, I was not surprised to see Grover Norquist's name come up in the book. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. absolutely, and he's, he was getting he's in on that it since the beginning. The, the idea is, is let's really break down the capacity of government to really adopt social and economic priorities that serve people that give us a healthy environment that give everybody a a good, decent, basic um, standard of living. The saving taxpayer dollars, as I say, is an anti-tax message. There's nothing in here about increasing the taxation of the wealthy um, in significant ways, about any policies that redistribute social economic goods and rights. Well, but Kay, we have these wonderful uh, billionaires who just, you know, give to charity and that their philanthropy funds all these reforms. So isn't that the answer right there? Just let the discretion of the rich uh, solve everything. It seems that seems uh, like a good approach. Well, it's so (laughs) interesting, you know, way back when um, around the late 19th century, early 20th century uh, into literally the 1930s, uh, eugenics became a, a, a big thing, you know, uh, and it was raced and classed, you know, let's, let's support uh, the, uh, let's make sure that the populations we have are healthy, productive uh, people. So let's get rid of the born criminals. Let's get rid of people of color. Let's get rid of poverty. And in that case, there there was an early eugenics attack even on philanthropy and charity because it was thought that to the extent it existed at all, it extended the lives of people who shouldn't be here at all. Now, um, that whole message has, has been sort of reframed to basically say, let's let the billionaire-funded philanthropies and public-private partnerships make the decisions, 
power the moves. I mean, what we're seeing here is not just a series of decisions, but also a series of efforts to institutionalize reform mechanisms, administration, evaluation, assessment, and an outreach to the public. We're seeing a lot of entirely new organizations be formed uh, out of reform agendas that are are said to be um, justice-loving, and they will make sure reform goes forward, and they will be the watchdogs. But they're wholly created by, funded by, what we call Reform Inc., this set of brokered public-private relationships. So it it really is um, uh, absurd. But philanthropy is always there. Either it's going to be the problem or when it decides, when it gets big enough to not be the problem, it decides it's going to control. I have an idea. Tell me, is this more or less absurd? So they have these risk assessment algorithms, which is basically like pre-crime, like from Minority Report, you know, the Tom Cruise film, where we're, we're like, this person will be a criminal. We just know it. So the algorithm says so. What if we take that and we use risk assessment algorithms for who might be rich one day, and then we appropriate the wealth they do have now? So we prevent if they're like a millionaire, and they might become a billionaire, we can prevent that. And that would really, I think, curb a lot of harm, don't you think? <laughs> Alas, no. <laughs> I mean, probably we could predict who's going to be a billionaire with a lot more, uh, uh, you know, accuracy. In any case, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's kind of a the 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 equality point. You know, is uh, I think it's a it's a great one. You know, the way you look at the difference between the incarceration rate in the 1970s and the incarceration rate now. Yeah, I think. Some people don't know this, you know, I don't probably most people would not think 1960s, 1970s America was some paragon of of like a just place, you know, like it wasn't like there were a lot of problems there. But the incarceration rate was like less than half of what it is now. Um, and the, uh, you know, any inequality was much lower then uh, uh, than it is, you know, like we've basically returned to kind of the Gilded Age, 1920s you know, level of, of inequality. And as you say, you know, the austerity logic of teaming up with Republicans to like cut down the amount of explicit public spending on, you know, the prison system, you know, carried out through like the tax tax code or whatever that has a flip side that like, okay, we're running the government like a business. We're trying to cut down on expenses and maximize our revenue. Well, why don't we just start nickel and diming all the poor people who end up in the prison and like basically, uh, recreate kind of debtors prison, you know, like just, just, uh, adding in all these fees. And one of them is, uh, one, one of the biggest sort of criminalizations of poverty is the way that the bail system works. So maybe you could explain a little bit about this, about how many people are, uh, in jail, uh, having not been convicted of a crime and why the reason for that most of the time is because they can't raise like, you know, 500 bucks, Nancy, maybe since, uh, yes. I heard from you a bit. Um, you know, there's some, there, there's some graphics from prison policy initiative, um, in the book. Um, and Kay and I always recommend the work of, of prison policy initiative was done a great job. I think of, um, clarifying for people exactly who is in, in, in the system and, 
um, for what and where and why. Um, but one of the surprising features, I think, um, um, of the prison industrial complex for a lot of people is the huge number of people incarcerated who are in jail. Um, and the majority of those are uh, people who have not been convicted of a crime. They've been arrested and they're, they're um, uh, you know, awaiting trial. Um, and yes, you're right that a significant percent of, of them, and, and this is especially true for women, um, are languishing in jail because of their inability to make a small amount of, of bail. Um, and so lots of debates about, um, I mean, the simple solution, of course, is to eliminate cash bail, right? The, 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 the purpose of cash bail is to ensure that people will turn up at their trial. Uh, many people who are languishing in, in jail for, you know, for uh, around bail fees, are, you know, are relatively minor offenses. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, if people who are awaiting serious, serious um, um, charges, serious violent crimes, murder, often are not even granted bail. Okay, so a lot of a lot of those, you know, unable to make bail are there because of relatively minor minor amounts um, of bail that they are too poor to pay. You know, the simple solution is to um, you know, say eliminate cash bail. The purpose of bail is to get people to show up at trial. There's a lot of research that indicates that most people do. Most people will. Um, and if they don't turn up at trial, they've, you know, they, they, they forgot a date. They couldn't get a ride. It's some relatively innocuous, um, reason as opposed to fleeing the jurisdiction. You know, so that's a simple solution is eliminate cash bail. Um, but even Reform Inc. wants to um, get in on, you know, this issue of, you know, the problem with cash bail. And then again, wants to, you know, all we should do these, you know, use our algorithms to determine, um, you know, who should be eligible or not. You know, well, I mean, those algorithms are not neutral. They're based on information that is gathered by the criminal legal system. They're very much raced and classed, um, you know, in terms of these sort of expectations of, you know, where do you live, um, employment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah. Cash bail is a great example. Go ahead, Kate. Yeah, let me just, based in the... Uh, Arnold Ventures with John and Laura Arnold. Um, he's he's the former Enron executive who got a a big payout just before Enron collapsed. Uh, they created uh, a risk assessment called the uh, PSA and uh, have been working to institutionalize it. Theirs does not use things like the neighborhood you live in uh, or uh, employment as some of the indicators, as other risk assessments that are in widespread use, uh, as Nancy points out, do. But that doesn't mean the Arnold Ventures risk assessment is 
any better. The interesting thing is that um, all of the information in it comes from the criminal legal system itself. So mm -hmm. it assumes that the policing that produced these criminal you know, records and the adjudications that produce these criminal records are somehow free of any kind of race or class or gender taint. And that's absolutely absurd. I just wanted to, to, to put that um, to yeah. put that in because Arnold Ventures will make a lot about how theirs doesn't, their risk assessment doesn't, uh, doesn't do this, but, uh, but it takes for granted a lot of things. And when they've come under attack years ago, when Nancy and I were starting to write about risk assessments and we did a piece for truth out, we contacted uh, what was then the John and Laura Arnold foundation to ask if they would, they were testing at that point, their um, risk assessment tool. And we asked them if we could see the, criteria they used. And they replied that we could not, alas, because it was a pri proprietary. Proprietary, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then later, years later, under extraordinary pressure from uh, Illinois activists and other activists around the country, and, you know, uh, I will say uh, ACLU, and un under incredible pressure, they finally released the um, the I think it's nine uh, criteria they use, and they they sort of show their scoring system, and this is meant to prove transparency. It shows a certain kind of transparency, but it doesn't change the data input, which is entirely police and court based. And garbage in, garbage out, as they say, right? Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and that. So even 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 when they improve their instruments, you know, and then coming under more attack on uh, from from researchers and we cite a number of these researchers um in the the book who who have have sort of demolished any idea that that these algorithms are really can be free of of racial and class violence uh, bias and can accurately produce, uh, predict future dangerousness and future uh, violence. That's been done. So then the argument shifts to say, well, there are also other reasons for using risk assessment instruments. For example, you know, in the first step reforms where some, not many, but some federal prisoners can be considered for early release. A risk assessment tool has been created through this reform that everybody in federal prison is supposed to be assessed. And it's supposed to tell us what their social and educational and, uh, you know, their needs are. They're essentially criminogenic needs. That is, it's based on an assumption that this is a pathological population. Is it more pathological than Donald Trump or Donald Rumsfeld or, <laughs> uh, 
or I see. It seems like Donald. Donald might be a criteria. Anyone named Donald is suspect. It seems like. <laughs> the the Donalds. The the Donald. You can just see it now. You can just see it now. It's a Saturday Night Live. Donald Glover wow. gets a pass, though. Right. But th- this is a great point, I think, in how you know, like your the sort of broader argument you're making, which is, you know, as I was saying, I think anyone. It, it, you don't have to be any kind of a radical to just be like, well, okay, if things were as far as, uh, you know, the incarceration rate and so forth, if things were better in the 1960s, let's try to replicate some of the qualities of the 1960s, uh, namely jack up the tax rate to 70 percent, uh, the top marginal tax rate and like, you know, try to do a bunch of, uh, you know, war on poverty type stuff like let's let's uh, let's. Let's set up new welfare programs. Let's uh, reduce some desperation in the bottom of society. That seems to be, you know, associated with crime in some way. And uh, what would that do? You know, that would imply radically reducing the wealth and power of the billionaire class. And so they're going to have a real strong incentive to come up with some kind of argument why you don't need to do that. And what you can do instead is buy our proprietary uh, algorithm that tells you, you know, holds your skin squashes up to the, you know, light or whatever to see if you're light enough to like get out on pretrial release or whatever the hell it is, you know, and it's hey, just, you don't, you don't even have to buy the Arnold PSA. <laughs> they'll give it to you free and they'll surround you with all of this contract based support so that you're doing it right. So that you're doing it their way. And so that you'll keep doing it right you know, some of the others will charge but arnold will give it to you free and that that's almost more it. suspicious because it's like if i'm get you know what if if this you is given way even more suspicious <laughs> <you> think <laughs> Who, who's the product here you know like like what are you trying to pull on me with this uh you know ostensibly you know, a uh, 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 philanthropic endeavor. Well, and I, I think, you know, because time is flying by here, I, I have so many more things I would love to dive into, but I, I feel like we should, um, we should get into a little bit of, because your, your book does such a great job of documenting so many of the, uh, you know, problems in the system and the problems in the reform effort to address the system. And so I wonder if we might talk a little bit about what uh what would be a better way you know and and we could talk about uh how abolition is is different in, in its conceptualization of how to redress these issues um so yeah so so what uh what what would you say uh we need to to how do how do we need to rethink uh these interconnected issues so that we could finally not reproduce the system and the problems well abolition is you know, as so um, many have said, um, abolition is not just about abolishing the prison and the criminal legal system and the police. Um, it's about creating um, communities um, that are resourced and self-sustaining, you know, and so certainly all of the money and more, you know, $184 billion plus per year, um, which goes into this machinery of, you know, death and destruction and violence, um, could be um, put into education, 
could be put into healthcare, um, job creation, employment opportunities, um, you know, housing, any any number of um, socially constructive um, endeavors, you know, and so that's a big piece of where we need to start is to think about um, public good, right? Um, public good and public resources and community support. And, and Kay, what would you say the challenges are to that? I, I noted uh, the, the the part in the book where because you, you show because of our history with settler colonialism and chattel slavery and the, the, the specific form of racial capitalism that, de- that has developed here, it's not so simple as pitching people on, uh, well, we could just reform our way to be like, uh, the, some of the, you know, strong welfare European countries, you know, the Nordic or social democratic countries. Uh, what's the challenge that we have here particularly? Well, we we have some enormous challenges. I mean, the first is that – let me just list a couple of them, and then um, Nancy can, can talk about this too. What we're seeing now is uh, a backlash against campaigns to defund the police, to uh, really hold police accountable – that's an incredibly dangerous backlash. And of course, the Republicans support that backlash unabashedly. And the Democratic Party establishment uh, has has no spine and no plan and no deep conviction to try to undo this. I mean, Biden is a, a police supporter from the very beginning. So we've got a police system whose Violence is being exposed more every day, including the actual number of deaths resulting uh, from from police action. We're, we're, we're seeing that intensify, and we're seeing the criminalization of protest, all kinds of protests, protest against police, protest against environmental degradation. Uh, even some states are really trying to criminalize union and workplace organizing uh, kinds kinds of actions. When power seeks to protect itself, it is ruthless. And there is that moment um, here when we're facing a lot of ruthlessness. And yet there's this also explosion of interest that it was, it's been building for decades, but Ferguson and the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings that accompanied those actions and the killing of Breonna Taylor and, and, and others have also created almost unprecedented openings where even moderate people who didn't want to see this violence are seeing it. And the pandemic has both been um, brutal in its uh effects on 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 poor communities which are disproportionately black and brown um and at the same time there's a greater dawning awareness of 
of just how deep the inequalities are and just how clear the elites are that they're not going to do anything that really, really helps um, people who are struggling. So many movements, uh, movements against police violence, movements for environmental um, justice and well-being, um, immigrant rights movements, uh, anti-poverty movements, reproductive justice movements, queer movements that aren't just about marriage and just aren't uh, uh, that, that, that are, are radical queer movements, transgender organizing, that kind of thing. We're seeing um, greater and greater awareness of, of the way our interests, all of our interests uh, overlap, which isn't to reduce them to one, one little cookie cutter template, but it does mean there are streams of experience and perception and organizing savvy that can be brought together in entirely new ways. Um, cross movement, cross constituency, um, organizing. But it's going to depend on our understanding that even if we support certain reforms that don't expand the system, which is not the bipartisan agenda, but certain things like um, early release, uh, compassionate release, um, decarceration that doesn't come uh, with fee-based strings to it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, even now the bipartisan agenda people will tell you, oh, we think these fines and fees are just crippling. So the reforms that they offer – offer things like payment plans, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not, or, or, or we'll reduce them a little bit, but we'll, so you don't have to pay it all at once. They don't get rid of them and they're not going to get rid of them because municipalities and states don't want to get rid of them. They're revenue sources, just the same way county jails are revenue sources. So it's, you know, it, it's really interesting, but more and more people are starting to understand that, they're being sold a bill of goods. And even if they're not ready right this minute to take to the barricades, and many people aren't, I certainly see, and, and Nancy, you may be able to talk to this too, I'm seeing um, many more openings than I've ever seen in my life to start to talk about structural issues. Yes. And, and I would say, I mean, let me echo, um, you know, your discussion of, cross-movement, um, coalitions, K, that's crucial. I would say that it's essential um, that that all of them have at the center um, a deep critique of racial capitalism, um, a commitment to um, combating white supremacy, um, an honest an honest and relentless critique of capitalism, because that's at the heart of it, right? And this is this is partly why we aren't Norway, right? Back to your original question, and <laughs> um, and um, you know, the 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 Western European so-called socialist democracies um, have partly been able to flourish, um, at least up until fairly recently um, because of their relative um, ethnic homogeneity. 
You know, there's a really large literature here about white racial resentments um, and how that has led to opposition to um, all kinds of social spending, right? Whether it's around education or um, social welfare or healthcare, this idea that somehow um, communities of color are going to benefit somehow at the expense of, you know, white people. Um, you know, Norway, for example, um, you know, has been able to, you know, there's not this history of criminalizing a certain racial or ethnic population in, in Norway. Um, so it's been easier for them to, you know, view crime as a, as a problem of, you know, sort of temporary loss of community and we can bring our comrades back in. Um, you know, but we've seen, you know, in the past several decades, you know, in Western Europe, you know, the challenges that they've faced um, to their socialistic ideals as they've faced more and more immigration from, you know, post-colonial peoples, you know, and that's, you know, going to be true if we're talking about England or France or, or you know, Norway. Um, so I don't think it's possible to have a, you know, anti-capitalist socialist perspective without also having an anti-racist one. Right. That makes sense. I I just want to add to that. We need to be keeping track of, you know, just because, um, you know, Trump still has followers, but Trumpism was never just about Trump. He became a vehicle and a lightning rod for, uh, a really growing, vicious, um, sort of misogynist, uh, white supremacist, anti-Semitic right. And we're seeing the a sort of white nationalist right move. We're seeing that all over the world. Mm-hmm. So to a certain extent, in fact, to a big extent, I think the more we can also make our work um, – international in scope and we pay attention not just to what's happening in the criminal legal system but to the structural um challenges and fights that are are facing us i mean i think there's there's more room for more people more people are seeing things and there's more room uh, to move but it's all going to depend on how willing we are and growing numbers of us are to um to be able to say we have more faith in a future than we have in trying to tweak this bullshit. Yeah. It's a in- international and intersectional. One might say we need the wor- the workers of the world to unite, for example. That might be a slogan that we could we could offer. Not just not just the workers, we need everybody. Everyone. We That's need right. everyone. <laughs> workers I mean. and non-workers. Yeah, the loom workers, non-workers. The um well that's yeah that's been an hour so uh i i think we'll probably leave it there but yeah uh Kay and nancy the book is called carceral con we'll post a link in our in our show notes and um thanks for coming on the show thank you for a wonderful discussion it was a pleasure see you next time hopefully yeah bye-bye everybody thank you